This is the RJ Metrics Buddy Time Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Moore. Every episode of this podcast features another RJ Metrics team member sharing things you might not find out about them hanging around the water cooler. I want to extend a big thanks to Alex Klieger. His Softball Diaries podcast is awesome and is the inspiration for this one. And with all that said, let's meet this episode's buddy. Welcome to the Buddy Time Podcast. I am Bob Moore, here with today's guest. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what your title is, and how long you've been at RJ. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Bob. Um, I'm Akash, um, and I'm on the data warehouse team at RJ. Uh, it's part of the CS team. Um, and I work with clients uh, to figure out um, data integrity, data accuracy issues uh, for the most part, um, and also work on several other projects with them. Cool. Can you talk through a little bit, actually, on the customer success team, there are all these different distinctions that the analysts fall into yes. now uh, with various two-letter acronyms, usually. Uh, can you just go through them and explain for people listening that kind of know that they exist but don't really know what the difference is? Definitely. Um, so the analyst team um, has three um, distinctions. Well, I guess we have two now, but there used to be three. Mm-hmm. Um, the three w- used to be the IAs, which were the implementation analysts, uh, they are responsible for onboarding a client. So anything uh, pre-sales and a little after conversion of a client uh, would be handled by the IA. Uh, there's DW, which is what I am, uh, which is a data warehouse. Um, and we work with uh, general tech support uh, and data discrepancies and general issues with the data warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's data analysts, DAs, uh, who, who work with clients to help them um, make good business decisions by helping them uh, design new analysis. So like a client comes in and says, hey, I want to analyze which deliveries are doing really well. Um, And the DA can go, okay, this is the data that you'll need. And this is how you should go about thinking about this kind of problem. Gotcha. So the DWs help people solve uh, when things are going wrong in some way and the DAs handle kind of opportunistic requests or things that uh, might broaden the value of the platform. Perfect. Gotcha. Um, So... You mentioned uh, that in addition to your core responsibilities, you work on a bunch of other random stuff. Can you talk a little bit about some of that stuff? Um, sure. Um, so right now, for example, I'm working on a triage revamp project. Um, triage revamp. Yeah. So triage is, is the portion of um, the workflow where clients file new requests uh, with the team. And the triage team is responsible for routing them out to the appropriate analyst to work on. Um, I've been on triage for the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a rotational role, and we are going to make it more rotational uh, in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new process um, is different in that it has it has a single triager. We used to have two triagers um, full-time on triage, mm-hmm. and they used to alternate triage duties every day. Um, but now we have a single triager whose role is now limited Um, to just basically identifying what category of ticket is coming in Mm -hmm. and uh, sending it across to the right person. Gotcha. What what are some of those categories of tickets? Sure. Um, So broadly, there's data warehouse and data analysis, right? Sure. Uh, But within data warehouse, there's several different categories. Mm -hmm. Um, There's stuff like adding a new column. Um, Then there's a a discrepancy ticket, which is when... um, clients expect to see, for example, $100,000 of revenue in month of January, but they're seeing $90,000 of revenue, for, for instance, Sure. and they want to figure out why. Um, there's also system bugs, uh, which is where we interface with the engineering team 
uh, give them the information that the client has provided to us and then mm-hmm. get back to the client on whatever information we receive from the from them. Um, and then there's data migrations, which is um, slightly more involved and now is probably part of the services side, okay. uh, but it used to be owned by the data warehouse team, um, which is where we swap out the underlying data sources for clients. So they, let's say they move from Magento to Shopify. Uh, these two data sources have completely different structures and databases. Uh, so we need to swap out the underlying data sources without affecting the reporting that it's mm. built on, um, essentially. Uh, I can't think of any more yeah. right now, but yeah. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have a particular favorite or least favorite category of these things? Like what's exciting, what's boring? I love migrations um, uh-huh. in most cases because migrations are always... Uh, they're always complex and they can vary uh, from client to client. Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 most cases, clients have their own custom designed databases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's never a strict process or a formula that we can use to, uh, you know, swap out the, the data sources. Mm-hmm. Um, it also requires a ton of client communication and understanding and um, scoping out of the project. Uh, so that makes things very interesting. Gotcha. A lot more fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you ever dabbled in the DA side or worked uh, in any of these other roles within the CS team? Um, so not directly. I was, I was, I think I was like the first real member of the data warehouse team uh-huh. uh, to be hired. Yeah. Um, but we do have one kind of request, which is kind of similar to DA, mm-hmm. which is uh, a translation request, which is where like a client has an Excel spreadsheet, for example, that they have internally uh-huh. or they have a SQL query that they're using uh, and they want RJ's assistance in translating that into RJ um, dashboards, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like a DA thing, which is more involved, uh, but it's not quite DA in that we don't like ask them 10 questions about what they want to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Has the rollout of the SQL report builder impacted any of that translation stuff or ha- have you started to see some of that? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, all the requests that clients uh, wrote in with uh, trying to... Uh, build stuff out in SQL and translating mm-hmm. that into RJ have now gone away because they can just pretty much copy paste their queries and change some syntactical things a little yeah. bit around. Yeah. Um, that is amazing. Uh, I'm very happy with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so are there, do you feel like we're missing any key parts of the story of your, your typical day? Like if you look through uh, at least uh, outside of ping pong, which we'll talk about later, uh, if you think about you know the scope of your responsibilities, yeah. uh, does anything else come to mind when you think of the work you do here? Um, well, I, I know that I mentioned uh, several random projects, mm-hmm. um, but I only mentioned like the triage revamp project, sure. which, is, which is a great example because we're working on it right now. Uh, but maybe within the the nine hours that I work on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. approximately, um, I would probably spend five to six hours doing the day-to-day data warehouse stuff. Uh, The remaining two hours would be, um, in addition to meetings, uh, some project stuff. Gotcha. uh, Which could differ, yeah. Um, Cool. Any of those projects uh, you want to talk about more? Um, Well, let me see. (laughs) I can't think of anything right now. Um, Sure. So we worked on um, an SLA project. Internally, uh, for account managers as well as externally for clients, uh, when they write in with requests, mm-hmm. they're not always sure about how much time um, they should expect it to take mm-hmm. uh, to be resolved, whether it's a discrepancy issue or whether it's um, a DA request, for instance. Um, and we do have a ton of data on that. We do know we do know that historically, you know, these kinds of requests have taken this much time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so uh, something I worked on was to design or like come up with numbers that we can provide to clients that say that hey you know what this is a discrepancy request and this this takes approximately seven to nine business days mm-hmm. to resolve. Gotcha. Um, it helps account managers a lot in setting expectations with clients mm-hmm. uh, and also clients uh, to communicate internally to their uh, team. Awesome. That's really cool. And uh, for those listening that don't know what SLA means, it's a service level agreement. Uh, so there's kind of a, some standards around setting expectations for how long stuff is going to take uh, right. or what level of service we're going to provide. Um, so very cool. Uh what happens when you go home? Uh, what's your What's your life like outside of the office here? Um, yeah, so so I I am a I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, just following world politics and the general geopolitical um, mm-hmm. atmosphere, and so I just like go home and read a ton of news. Uh-huh. Um, I'm very curious about like what's happening around the world, um, and I do devote a time to like reading about Indian news. Uh, just because I don't want to lose touch with like what's happening in my own country. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I spend a ton of uh, time doing that. On the weekends, um, I spend a lot of time watching and or playing soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a huge soccer fan. I watch European soccer on like a daily basis, pretty much. Um, my Saturday and Sunday mornings are pretty much very early mornings, which is uh, unfortunate, but. Um, they're like seven forty-five a.m. games that 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 start, so I need wow. to like wake up, yeah, um, and watch them. But I don't mind doing that at all because I love soccer. Yeah. Uh, when you are watching soccer, do you have like a group of similarly obsessed buddies that you watch it with, or is it a, a very personal experience? If it's if it's uh, a very big game, then I generally like going to an, an Irish pub, which is called Fado. Yeah. Um, Fado. Yeah. Uh, I've been there with a couple of RJ folks as well. Uh huh. Um, but aside from that, since it's like seven forty-five a.m. in the morning, <laughs> yeah, it's, kinda, it's hard to like. Kind of tough to enlist people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, are you uh, when you play soccer? Are you in a intramural league or uh, that's not a thing? We're not in college anymore. Are you in a city sports league or anything like that, or is it kind of pickup games? <laughs> Just pickup games. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, Penn Park has. Uh, they have a bunch of students, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, from Drexel and Penn who just like play um, every Saturday evening mm-hmm. I think they play a lot more often than just Saturday evenings but I only go on Saturday evenings and yeah. uh, join them yeah so this is me uh, being a uh, person who is unathletic in a lot of ways asking this question <laughs> but I'm super curious about the process so you you show up uh, at that field at some approximate vague time there's a group of people there is it like gym class in elementary school and you like you pick a captain and then you you pick teams just by looking people up and down and profiling them or do you how do you decide the structure of the game before you start playing um so let's say you show up at 5 30 right yeah. there's probably like three games already going on okay um you can just de- you can decide which one you want to join but mm-hmm. generally you want to pick the one that doesn't have too many people already involved in it right uh-huh. um and generally you can tell if it's if it's a private game um because they're going to be very color coordinated, and they're going to have jerseys and you ah, know, okay. official equipment that they're playing with. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you just identify the game you want to join, mm-hmm. and then show up and say, "Hey, which team?" Pretty much. Wow. So it's, it's a it's very like a rolling basis. People join, people fall off. Yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, sometimes there's going to be an uneven count on both teams because mm-hmm. there's going to be an odd number of players. Uh, but that's very easy to um, handle because there's always people coming in. Gotcha. Um, the one other thing is how to divide teams mm-hmm. um, is mostly by um, color coordinating. 
Um, so all the light colored t-shirts would play on one side and huh. the dark colored t-shirts would play on the other side. Wow. Yeah. Uh, are you, uh, I don't know how else to ask this question. Are you good? Uh, I am, I am all right. I'm, I'm not great. I know you're a modest person. Are, like <laughs> in the grand scheme of uh, the people who play there, like, do you feel like you're able to? Oh, kind not of be, at all. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm okay. But mm-hmm. uh, compared to a lot of the players who play there, yeah. uh, they play on a regular basis, and they're they're faster, stronger, and uh, just much better than I am. Yeah, awesome. Which makes it awesome to play. Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah. that's the best environment to play in. Um, I, I don't want to bury the lead on something you mentioned before, which is keeping up with geopolitics and Indian news. Uh, it's a thing that I wish I kept up on more. And yeah. I kind of want to just ask, what's going on in the world right now? Like, what are you following and what do you think are really the big stories that the average American who does nothing but watch election <laughs> coverage on CNN should really know about? Yeah. Um, aside from what's happening like in the U.S. with the primaries and the elections, yeah. um, I'm, I'm really interested in what's happening in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel terrible for Syria because it's it's really going to be um, a crazy place to live in for the next 10, 15, maybe 20 years mm-hmm. because of what's happening. Um, but I think strategically from the perspective of Russia and Russia and Europe and um, the U.S., um, and the Middle East in general, I think it's a very interesting uh, situation right now, which mm. which could, uh, well, I think it's very important for Russia, especially because uh, Putin is playing his cards really well, at uh-huh. least so far. What is, why is it important for Russia? Can you go a little more 101 level? Sure. I, so I, I read this, uh, this uh, opinion article recently, um, and I think that made a lot of sense. I don't know how far it's true, but I think it made a lot of sense in that, so um, Putin decided to call a ceasefire in, uh, in Syria recently. Uh, which was very abrupt, which was very unexpected. And uh, the U.S. and Syria, even, even the Syrian government, uh, was surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, the article stated that the reason that Putin called that sudden ceasefire was because um, he was trying to show that he would be able to stop the flow of migrants to Europe if he's able to pull out. Um, of Syria. Hmm. So if, if Russia is not involved in the conflict anymore, it reduces the violence tremendously and Russia has the power to call a ceasefire. Hmm. And hence, Europe, which is which is uh, struggling under the the impact of migrants, um, would would probably um, take off the sanctions that they have imposed on Russia. On Russia. Yeah. Wow. So it is indirect leverage uh, yeah. to get sanctions relieved. Yeah. Can you, I, I'm just going to ask a really dumb question. Uh, the history of Russia being involved in Syria and like Russia's uh, Russia's role in the Syrian conflict generally, which I believe did not originate with something that Russia did. Can you just maybe go back in time a little bit to uh, how this situation kind of came about in the first place? Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I I'm not entirely sure what what triggered Russia's involvement mm-hmm. um, in the conflict um, itself. But I know that um, from from um, the perspective of who's on whose side, um, Russia is is um, on the Syrian government's side, um, and they're against the rebels. But they entered they entered Syria um, on the on by saying that they're against ISIS, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they um, it's, it's it's unclear whose side they're actually on because um, they have been bombing some rebel areas according to some reports mm-hmm. um, but they entered Syria um, stating that they want that they are against ISIS and they're helping the government against ISIS <laughs> uh, definitely a complicated situation um, yeah 
do uh, you mentioned that you follow Indian news as well? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a certain sentiment uh, in the Indian news media around the conflict in Syria, and uh, like how do the how do folks lean in that that realm? Well, I think um, India doesn't really have a major role um, mm-hmm. to play in that conflict, um, so there hasn't been too much uh, news, at least to my knowledge, about. Um, how India feels about that, mm-hmm. um, but I guess indirectly, since there's there's a conflict between India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. and um, Pakistan has some relationship with ISIS and Afghanistan, uh, mm-hmm. there's probably there's definitely some kind of um, link there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think India is directly involved in. Gotcha. So what what's big in the news in India right now? Um, well, we had uh, India had elections. Uh, about a year and a half, maybe two years back, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a it was a big election because um, the the Indian National Congress, the party, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially is that a, that's a political party. It's a political party. Um, they've been ruling India, um, India's independent life for pretty much the entire time, except maybe four or five years in between. Um, but they were they were voted out by a, a complete majority. Um, and the new party in power is the BJP. Um, it's it's the Bharatiya Janata Party, which translates to the Indian People's Party, I guess. Okay. Um, but the prime minister, who's from the BJP, obviously, um, his name is Narendra Modi, and he used to be the chief minister of a state, which is uh, essentially the governor of a state mm, okay. uh, in U.S. terms. And the prime minister is essentially the president. Mm-hmm. Although India does have a president. Uh, the president's role is mostly symbolic, uh, similar to the Queen of England, mm. I guess, okay. in some ways. Is that an elected position, that president? Uh, not elected by the public, no. I see. They're elected by um, members of parliament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? So the uh, what is the, the, the new party that has right. kind of swept the uh, yes. political landscape... Are they more conservative? Are they more liberal? What's the direction that India has moved in as a result uh, of this? Um, let's just say they're more economy-friendly. Uh-huh. Um, India, India's political scenario, I think, is very different from most Western countries in that there's there's no clear ideological difference um, in their policies. Mm-hmm. Um, the BJP, which is now in power, is more, is more economy-friendly. And uh, the elections that they won recently... They are set to one simply because of Narendra Modi, who's the prime minister. Uh-huh. Uh, as I was saying, he was the chief minister of a state, which is like the governor of a state, and uh, his record there in terms of the economy mm-hmm. was was very great. And um, pretty much the entire country voted for him to be the leader of the country, uh-huh. and not so much the BJP as the party in power. I see. So the uh, BJP kind of came into power because of the influence of this guy pretty much yeah. yeah is it when you say they're economy friendly that seems like a uh, an easy choice to make if it's uh, i want to vote for economy friendly versus sure. does that mean that it's more uh more or less big government uh or uh more or less socialist like um, i would say it's it's more decentralized government okay. and it's also more being open to foreign investment mm. uh, that's that's a big uh, that's a big factor. It just being open to foreign investment in retail, for example. Gotcha. Um, the International Congress was has always been against um, that. Mm-hmm. Um, they ha- they have a decent argument in that um, a lot of farmers in India depend um, on Indian consumers, uh-huh. uh, and if that investment comes from um, foreign 
retail uh, retail companies like Walmart and Tesco. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to take away a lot of these smaller uh, department stores. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the larger picture there being that for the the larger economy of India, uh, foreign investment is required, and mm-hmm. we should be open to foreign markets in general, which is what Narendra Modi has done. Um, for the state, the state in which he was he chief minister and is now uh, hopefully doing for yeah. the country. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, how frequent are uh, those elections? You said they happened two or three years ago. Uh, for I might be totally wrong. Four or five. It's <laughs> four or five. Four or five. Uh, is there? Is it? It may be too early to tell, but is there a sense that uh, the change has been something that the public has been happy with, and that this is someone who's going to pay, stay in power? I think six months after uh, the elections took place, sentiment was very, very positive. The markets were doing really well. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think the country has seen as much um, hard data yeah. uh, to be able to con- come to a conclusion there. I think we need another three or four years. Of, yeah, I was going to say, of, economic data comes in these 10-year right. mega cycles. It's yeah. got to be rough to yeah. react already. Um, interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, so... As fascinating as it is to talk about global politics, I want to talk about you a little bit more. Um, you and I have something in common, which is the phrase poker playing robot. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your poker bot? <laughs> sure. Uh, this was my engineering project. Um, I, was, I was doing engineering in IT. Mm-hmm. Um, and Where'd you go to school? In uh, Pune, India, which is where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the poker playing bot was my final uh, final project for engineering, and uh, we essentially designed um, a heads up poker playing board. Heads up being just one on one, yeah, um, which would play against a human. Um, the final use case or conclusion there was to analyze human behavior, in that how um, how a human would react to a big loss or a big win, mm-hmm. um, to see whether their behavior really changes after those events. Gotcha. And is that uh, in their their playing style they're reacting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in poker, um, a player makes bets, uh, and the player could be bluffing. So based on how big their bet is, um, when they're betting, what's the frequency of their betting, and especially how that betting pattern changes once they win a huge hand or lose a huge hand, mm-hmm. um, you can tell whether the player is like more aggressive or... Um, you know, is more risk taking. Um, so we we quant- we try to quantify uh, the humans the humans behavior mm-hmm. on like three or four parameters like aggressiveness and um, risk taking ability. Um, and there were a couple of more which I don't remember exactly right now. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, interesting. And how was that implemented? Uh, was there a particular programming language, or did you use any open source libraries? Uh, we use Java mostly. Yeah, uh, it was. Like at that point, I was I was really, I've always been terrible at programming and coding in general, which is why I just went away from that field uh, after some point. Uh, but we use Java for the most part, I believe. Yeah. Gotcha. My poker bot was also written in Java. Nice. Like, uh, what are the odds? So I I know that you uh, graduated from the University of Arizona. Was this project a project from school before you were in Arizona? And was that yes. what's kind of? Can you walk me through the timeline of? Your time in India and then moving to the States? <coughs> sure. Um, I pretty much grew up in India. Um, I went to school in the same city. Um, I did go to a boarding school between grades 8 and 10. Hmm. Um, so I went to a boarding school then and then came back to the city after that to finish 11 and 12. Uh-huh. Um, in India, we have 
school until 10th grade and then 11 and 12 is sort of junior college okay um i think that's high school in the us or is that yeah so high school uh is usually 9 through 12 in the right. us yeah. yeah so in india it's school till 10 and uh-huh. then junior college mm-hmm. 11 and 12 um at that point you go into your bachelor's degree I see. which is typically four years but depending on whether um, uh is it typical that Uh, people will go to boarding school for eight through ten, or was there some special situation for you? Uh, not really. I, I I don't think it's typical. Um, uh-huh. I my parents decided that um, I was too pampered. I'm the only child, uh-huh. <laughs> and they decided to basically um, help me become an independent person. And I guess my my dad always had plans to be able to send me abroad mm-hmm. um, later in my life, uh, and so he thought it was important for me to be independent. Um, yeah. Do you think that was effective? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh you learn a lot of life skills and just negotiation skills, I guess. Yeah, uh, tell me about that boarding school. I mean, uh I picture boarding school in the US and it's it could be the full spectrum from uh this kid keeps uh breaking into homes and spray painting so we want to send him off to straighten <laughs> him out all the way to this is a very cushy sending the kid off to a resort for a couple of years like yeah where does it fall on that spectrum and what I, was your experience like yeah to be honest it was more on the on the cushy resort scale if yeah. i if i was being completely honest uh, because it was a very new school it was uh, when i joined the school it was 2 years old mm. and uh, my my class or like my entire batch was like 25 to 30 students uh-huh. um and we were interacting with our professors and teachers on a regular basis and it was a very, a very casual relationship um it was on a mountain the weather was great awesome um yeah it it wasn't um it wasn't your typical very strict and disciplinarian boarding school uh-huh. um if that's the impression that a boarding school gives to most people. I don't know. Yeah, what were the backgrounds of the your 25 to 30 classmates? Was it similar to you? Yeah, uh they were very similar to me. Uh most of them came from Mumbai. Mm-hmm. Uh the school was about an hour from where I grew up. Okay. So it wasn't very far. Um I I could pretty much come home on the weekend once a yeah. month, I guess. And how far was the school from Mumbai? Uh about two and a half, three hours. Okay. Essentially, if if New York was Mumbai, then mm-hmm. Philly is Pune. Which oh, is where I'm from. Great. Which is which is exactly uh, which is very similar actually. Okay, uh, gotcha. And then this school would have been in Baltimore, something like that, or Pittsburgh. I, no, I guess Pittsburgh is like <laughs> or the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think actually, I think Pittsburgh is I think Pittsburgh is a good estimate. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you for translating that into <laughs> uh, my my local non worldly terms. Um, cool. So, are there things about that experience at boarding school that stick out to you like i think a boarding school and i think you make really great friends that you'll have for life you've kind of gone through this you know this really formative time together particularly yeah. the fact that you're living there uh were there any great pranks were there any great shenanigans that went on in that time <laughs> um there were several and i don't know what scale of inappropriate i should get here <laughs> as inappropriate as possible <laughs> Uh, all right. So I personally, I was I was uh, a very sincere and studious guy back in school. I, I'm a nerd in general, uh, but I know of a lot of pranks that um, a lot of my other classmates um, were involved in. Uh, we had we had a physics professor mm-hmm. uh, who who really wasn't a fun guy to be around, uh, to be honest. And um, I think he he was he was not on great terms with a couple of students who um, who were known as. the mischief makers in school mm-hmm. uh, back then and one morning so we had morning games 
at like 5:30 a.m. so we had to wake up and go for um, one hour of exercise which differed every day mm-hmm. uh on this one particular day as i was walking to um get to those morning games i saw two of uh, my classmates sort of urinating outside this uh-huh. uh, this professor's door <laughs> uh and that was that was that was really very hilarious to me yeah uh did they get caught they they definitely got caught um <laughs> and uh they as a punishment they were they were asked to garden for um four days which i thought was a let off the old gardening for four days punishment complete let off that uh yeah that sounds like a, <laughs> that's a pretty good deal uh get to pee on the teacher's door <laughs> yeah get to spend some outdoor time uh cool I, are there um i'll jump ahead to one of my uh one of my stock questions that I ask everybody because mm-hmm. maybe this answer relates to boarding school, maybe it doesn't, but I like to ask everybody who's your best friend, uh, and I'm curious if it's somebody from that chapter of your life or or somebody from over here. Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one. I I'd say I have two best friends. One from my boarding school phase of life, uh-huh. uh, who I'm still in touch with, who's actually in New York, um, so I meet him pretty often. Um, and one is um, a neighbor of mine, oh. um, who I met a lot later in life. Like um, I guess when I was eighteen or nineteen. Mm. So I've known for about seven years. Is it a neighbor from uh, from, from Pune? Where? Oh, from, from Pune. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm curious about both those people. Tell me about the New York person. Yeah, uh, his name is Harshit. Uh-huh. He uh, went to school at um, Stevens in New Jersey. Sure. Um, he's he's actually from the state. Uh, where Narendra Modi, who's the Prime Minister of India, was ah, the chief the minister. The economically healthy state. Yes. Yeah. Um, and people from that state are always known to be very uh, business-oriented people. Mm-hmm. Like they would never, they would never go and take a job with somebody. They would always be the owners of a business. Hmm. Okay. Um, and they're actually there's a lot of them in um, in the U.S. Also. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He uh, he's a great guy. He's always uh, he's always we we were we were roommates back in boarding school and uh, for a while. Um, and we've, though we we went separate ways uh, in terms of like junior college and then engineering uh, bachelors and also masters, mm-hmm. uh, we've always sort of like kept in touch because you just kind of know someone when you you know shared a room with them and ate ate with them and like um, pretty much lived with them for the yeah. for three years of your life, um, three years of your early life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, my second best friend, I guess uh, his name is Sagar. He's He's currently uh, studying in France. Um, he is pursuing his, uh, I forget, it's, it's a master's in consulting or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's, he's been a neighbor uh, for a long time. And I think, I think we connected really well uh, for the whole geopolitic discussion, uh-huh. uh, politics and mostly that, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, I was hoping, his name is Sagar, I was hoping that you bonded over soccer. Uh, that would have <laughs> been great. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. And um, do you have any family here in the States? Uh, no, not really. I have a very distant aunt who uh, lives in Seattle, mm-hmm. who I met for the first time when I came to this country. So I would not say I have any yeah. <laughs> uh, family when I came here. Yeah. What uh, uh, Are your parents still in the town you grew up in? Yes. Um, how often do you get to see them? Um, I try and go back once a, once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, they are visiting in June um, here. It will be their first trip to the U.S. Oh, great. What do you have planned for them? 
Uh, I'm going to take them on the West Coast. Um, so I'm like taking a week off from work uh-huh. and um, showing them around Vegas and um, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Awesome. The Grand Canyon, which is awesome. Oh, great. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, how do they... You mentioned before that it was their dream to have you uh, go and live internationally. It yeah. sounds like that dream came true. How do they... Are they Are they super proud of you? How How's your relationship with them? Yeah. Um, I, I, I speak with my mother... Well, over text, but pretty much every day, um, she always like wants to know um, what I ate or like what I've been <laughs> doing the entire day. Yeah. Uh, so she pretty much just like texts me every day. Um, my dad, I speak, uh, I, I speak like I guess once a week mm-hmm. or so, uh, but that's a more involved conversation, yeah. um, which is always something that I like to have with my father. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're they're super proud of um, me being here. Uh, my dad has always had this romantic notion of the U.S. Uh, because of um, him reading Iron Ryan books and <laughs> really reading a lot of Iron Ryan books, um, and so he was always, he was always very fond. He's always been very fond of mm-hmm. the capitalist nature of the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Has, uh, you said their trip here will it be their first trip here ever or first trip since you moved here? First trip ever. Ever. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. That's really exciting. Um. So, uh, only child. How do you think that has affected you? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been given everything I basically asked for. Uh-huh. There was no one to compete with. Um, so I am, I'm definitely a pretty spoiled child, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the reason why I was sent to boarding school. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're too spoiled now. You need to get some discipline. Um, so, yeah, at the same time, though, obviously, you don't, you don't have that support um, system of a sibling mm-hmm. to, like, um, talk to. Um, but I guess you have friends for that. So. Sure. Did uh, did you end up in Philly because of the RJ Metrics job, or, or are you here for another reason? Oh, uh, purely because of the, of the RJ Metrics job. Awesome! I uh, was, uh, that makes me very happy. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was graduating and I was looking for jobs, and I always wanted to be on the East Coast. Uh, I I have a romantic notion of New York, mm-hmm. um, but New York is really expensive, and I don't know if I want to live there right now. Yeah. Um, so. I looked up jobs and I was like, I would love to work for a startup and like learn a ton in mm-hmm. my first um, first two years of my career. Yeah. So um, I looked I looked up jobs and uh, I saw RJ and I read some Glassdoor reviews and mm-hmm. um, everyone was raving about how great RJ is. Um, and yeah, I applied and I was fortunate enough to be here. Awesome. That's uh, that's really great to hear. Um, tell me about Philly and your relationship with Philly. What what neighborhood do you live in and uh, how do you like the city? Oh, uh, Philly! Philly is awesome. Um, I went to school in Arizona, and the city was Tucson, uh-huh. and Tucson it really does not have anything to do. Uh, it's a retirement city, and if you leave the university um, campus, there really isn't much to do. Uh-huh. So um, you can't really move around too much. The public transport is pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. So Philly was like, I love being here. Um, the transport, even though SEPTA is does not have a very good reputation, uh-huh. I love SEPTA. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I compared to Tucson. Yeah, <laughs> right. So um, yeah, I love Philly. I, I live in West Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, I when I when I got here, I think there was like an email circulated um, to to the CS team uh-huh. to like help me find a place or yeah, like, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, so I got a couple of recommendations in West Philly, and so I live uh, right by Forty Eighth in Baltimore. Yeah, sure. Initially, I was initially I was told that anything west of 45th is not a great area to be in. 
Um, and so when I uh, when I checked out the place initially, I was a bit skeptical about it. Uh-huh. Um, but then I figured out that the neighborhood looks really really good, mm-hmm. uh, and anything close to Baltimore is is really great. Great, yeah. Is that you're pretty close to Clark Park over there? Is that yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Clark Park is forty third, I think. Okay, great. Yeah. Something like five blocks from it. Awesome. Um, that's great. Uh, I we have reached the point where I'm going to ask you about ping pong, uh, which is <laughs> the. Uh, uh, the question that everybody wants me to ask you about. Um, ping pong is a very popular sport here at RJ Metrics. Uh, it seems like you've taken the world by storm since your arrival. Um, uh, I think if we were to hold a ping pong tournament today, you might be the odds-on favorite to take the number one spot. Uh, am I reading that correctly? And can you talk a little bit about how it is that you got as good as you are? Um, you're right. Ping pong is my claim to fame at RJ Metrics. Yeah. Um, I... I played ping pong growing up, but I can't say I played it um, competitively or professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe a friend of mine had a ping pong table at home and I just like went there occasionally and played some ping pong. Um, I probably did play uh, competitively within my school, but nothing serious. Like I had never wanted to be a great ping pong player. Yeah. <laughs> it's never one of my ambitions. Um, and well, I guess the reason I, I take to ping pong is because I played a bunch of tennis growing up. Um, I played tennis for like six or seven years straight, uh, competitively, and I think ping pong uh, it, it it translates to ping pong pretty well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I'm going to name a couple of people on the RJ staff here, and I want you to tell me about their ping pong game and whether sure. you're better than them. Jake Stein. Oh, I love talking about Jake Stein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this is this is not a very well known fact, and um, I'm I'm very flattered by this um, that Jake actually has notes on how to play me. Oh, <laughs> he have a, he has an Evernote file somewhere. Yeah, he has yeah. an Evernote file um, which he uses to uh, play <laughs> me. I, I have no idea about the contents of that file, uh, but I know for a fact that they do not work uh. because I, I, I generally burn. <laughs> deep burn. <laughs> yeah, I, I generally uh, beat Jake, uh, but on his day he can be um, he can be very good. So awesome. Uh, how about uh, the producer of this podcast, Mr. Ryan Williams? Oh, Ryan. Uh, so before this podcast, Ryan and I had a wager. Uh, we actually just played ping pong. <laughs> um, we had a wager that if if I beat him, um, I would get to talk about the fact that I beat him. And if I lost, um, I, I would have to say that I lost to him. Um, I'm happy to report that I won the game. <laughs> uh, and I can say confidently that um, that um, I, I think I generally beat Ryan. But... In the past maybe two months, mm-hmm. uh, Ryan has gone from uh, being convincingly beaten by me to um, shaving maybe one in three games wow. off of me. So um, he's he's really getting there. I need to I need to pull my socks up as well. Are there uh, other movers and shakers on the staff here? People that maybe started out not so good but are, are starting to be a threat. Oh, uh, Chris Schmidt. Oh, Schmidt. Yeah. Chris. Chris is uh, a great player. I think. Uh, I think he's the one who shaves the most games off of me, um, even more than than Ryan and Jake do. Um, in fact, for the past three or four weeks, mm-hmm. he's been winning against me more than I've been winning against him. Wow. Um, so Chris is definitely uh, not someone who people know about very well in terms of ping pong, uh-huh. uh, but he's really good. He's a sleeper. Yeah, he's a sleeper. Uh, amazing. We're overdue for a company ping pong tournament, by the way. I wonder when that's, uh, when that's coming around again. Yeah. It's about time. Um, we have a new table now. So. We do have a new table. 
our old table bit the dust. We had a very nice visual for it, though. I was uh, I was part of that. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that massacre. My uh, the story that I heard. I don't know how accurate it is, but I hope it's true because it's hilarious. Is just that that thing was old. I mean, that we bought that thing in. 2011 or actually 2010 December 2010 we bought that in the Camden wow. office uh, like the day before we moved to Philly because okay. we figured it would be easier to get the movers to move it because yeah. it was easy to get deliveries in Camden to get it delivered up uh, and it was our boardroom table for a while we like I used that table to like sign the, the final definitive documents on our like venture oh, capital wow. round and stuff uh, it, it has seen seen a lot of things um, but uh Apparently the bolts just got so worn down and stripped over time that at some point somebody was trying to fix it and took one bolt out and just every other bolt just just flew out of the thing and it just collapsed. Pretty much, we were uh, Ryan and I were trying to fix it mm-hmm. uh, because we we uh, noticed that the net was not as it was supposed to be; it was slanting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were trying to fix the net, and then we realized that um, to fix the net, we need to really. Uh, tighten a few screws here uh-huh. um, and then Ryan brought some stuff from home um, some um, equipment to fix it and uh, we tried lifting one side of the ping pong table mm-hmm. and because one of the legs did not have a screw in it or something it basically fell apart <laughs> um, so yeah it was definitely our doing but I'd like to think of it as mercy killing it was uh, it was due yeah, I think it's uh, you know sometimes you got to take those ping pong tables to a farm upstate, uh, get <laughs> yeah. a new get a new puppy. Um, I uh, was uh, surprised when I learned that you're proficient in Mandarin. Uh, where did you pick that up, and uh, do you get to use it? Proficient is a very strong word. <laughs> um, I would say that I I um, I can speak very basic Mandarin. Mm-hmm. At this point, I've forgotten how to write Mandarin. Uh-huh. Uh, I can probably write Ni Hao. But aside from that, I've forgotten um, all of it. Um, I learned Mandarin for about nine months when I was in India. Ah, okay. Um, one of my one of my uncles brainwashed me and said that China is gonna be the next world superpower and Mandarin is gonna be a really important language to learn. Uh-huh. Um, that might be true, um, but that's that's basically why I like started learning Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, it was just like. It was a fun language to learn, I guess. Very different language and very difficult language to pick up. Sure, yeah. Is um, I know you're fluent in Hindi. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mandarin is a tonal language. Is Hindi a tonal language or no? No. It's not. Uh, so that was a totally new. I'm, I'm impressed that in nine months you reached uh, any form of even remote <laughs> proficiency. It seems like that would be a very... How young were you when, when that was going on? Um, I think I was 19 or 20. Oh, 19 or 20, yeah. yeah. Uh, so late enough that we all have hope. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, was was Hindi spoken at home? How did you pick that up? Yeah, um, I grew up speaking Hindi. Uh-huh. Do you still um, speak Hindi with your parents typically when you're yes. texting and everything? Yes. Yeah. Um, I speak a mix of Hindi and English, I guess, uh, but more of Hindi definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I grew up learning three languages, I would say. Um, English was the first language in school, mm-hmm. um, so we studied everything in English. Um, Hindi was what we spoke outside of school in most cases. Um, and then in India, um, every state has its own language. So the state I come from has a language called Marathi. Um, and so uh, though I, I didn't really want to learn Marathi, I had to learn Marathi too because um, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people spoke Marathi. Hmm. Um, so I grew up learning three languages, yeah. Uh, are those regional languages 
more like dialects, or are they completely distinct <coughs> languages with their own origins? Um, they vary. Marathi, um, while it's not a dialect of Hindi, um, mm-hmm. if you know Hindi, you could probably understand someone um, speaking in Marathi. Mm-hmm. Um, they use the same script um, with a few subtle differences. Mm-hmm. Um, but some other states have completely different languages which have no relation whatsoever to Hindi. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it varies from state to state, I guess. Interesting. I know that one thing that I notice uh, in your accent is the... Uh, a thing that I typically associate with German, which is the uh, kind of uh, superpositioning of V's and W's, uh, like the V sound yes. and the W sound. Is that something that comes from, uh, where do you think that comes from? Like, which of the language? I've been called out on that a couple of times. Huh? Um, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure where it comes from. Um, honestly, I don't remember how we were taught to pronounce V's and W's uh-huh. and how they were distinct from each other. Maybe I just learned it incorrectly and maybe I've just like been. Um, pronouncing words incorrectly <laughs> all my life. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure how that comes about. Interesting. Um, well, I still uh, I still say water half the time when I'm talking about water. <laughs> if it makes it feel any better, um, I uh, there's a factoid here that uh, is on my dossier that I, I glossed over when we were talking about West Philly that I want to come back to, which is apparently you have a pretty interesting landlord. Uh, can you give me tell me uh, tell me a little more about that? Oh, okay, sure. I. Um so I live in um, a house who, that's owned by um, a man from Mexico. Um, he rents out all the rooms to um, anyone who wants to rent rooms, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So there's always this um, rotation of people coming in, living in the house for a couple of months, and then leaving. Huh. Um, especially in the summer when there's interns coming in. Um, there isn't much to say about the landlord specifically, uh-huh. uh, but the house is really the interesting. House situation? The yeah. house situation is really interesting because there's always new people that I get to meet. Like, I would just maybe tonight I, I enter the kitchen to cook some food and there's someone new who's there and I oh, wow. get to um, talk to someone new. So I, I guess uh, given my boarding school um, experience, I love to share my space with people. Yeah. Um, I love to just like come home and talk to people. So. Yeah. Uh, who are some of the more interesting characters you've encountered there? Yeah. How many people um, live in the house, by the way, at any given time? Uh, seven to ten. Wow. I'd okay. say, and uh, I cannot say I name ev- uh, I, I cannot say that I can name everyone who lives in the house right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I see all of them all uh-huh. the time, <laughs> so it's very difficult to figure it out. Um, Did your uh, when that email went around to the RJ Metrics people about helping you find a place to live, is this a place that came out of that, or did you find it somehow? Uh, no, this right. was Craigslist. Craigslist. Yeah, this was. So it this sounds was like a Craigslisty situation. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, cool. Uh, so yeah, some of the some of the people in the house that uh, maybe were. Yeah. Um, so last summer there were there were three interns who happened to live in the house at the same time. They were interning at Boeing, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, we we really formed like a great group to like go out. Um, we were the same age. Right now, there's people much older. There's people um, a bit younger than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't always have like this community that can go out and hang out. Uh, but last summer was great because we had this community um, and we would hang out pretty much. There was there was um, a friend now, uh, Matt. He uh, he and I played a bunch of chess. Like, I would literally go back from work and we would play a game or two of chess pretty much every day. Oh, amazing. Uh, so your um, your recommender here, the reason you're on this podcast, is Buck, uh, who, uh, when I asked uh, who I should interview, he named you. I know you've played chess with Buck before. Uh, 
has chess been a part of your life your whole life or something you picked up later? Uh, I think chess is sort of similar to, I guess, my ping pong mm-hmm. um, experience in that I just played it on and off. Um, nothing competitive. Yeah. Um, I just, I guess, played with friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but last summer, which is when I, I was playing with um, one of my roommates, uh, Matt, uh, which is when I really got into chess and I started like reading up on chess theory and uh-huh. all of that. Um, I was surprised to learn that there's, there's so much um, knowledge out there. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just decided to like make a chess Slack channel and um, and Buck, Buck, Buck is a great player at chess. I would say that Andres, who's on a bike ride now across the US, yeah. <laughs> um, is has beaten me, I think, in all the games that we've played. So wow. right now I would say Andres is the best chess player at RJ, though I don't have all the information yet. Uh, I will definitely... Uh I look forward to when Andres is back. Uh, we should do a do a podcast with him. I'd love to pick his brain on that. Yeah. Um, do you? How do you get better at chess? Do you play a lot? Do you study strategies? Uh, a combination of both, uh-huh. but uh, you definitely uh, need to study a little bit uh, in the beginning before you like start playing competitively. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to really um, get your like wrap your head around um, openings in chess yeah because the first 10 moves really dictates how the game is going to go after that Um, and there's there's different kinds of like fixed openings that uh, players have and that analysts have studied and recorded Mm -hmm. and there's a ton of theory in that Um, so yeah what what which pawn you move first and how you develop your pieces and make them active in the game is really I think the foundation of when you start learning chess. Huh. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I have always loved about chess, um, and I'm not a frequent player, but uh, when I built the poker bot, actually, one of the things that yeah. became very evident was there's such a finite number, uh, especially in Texas Hold'em, like I think there's only, I think the number's like th- approximately 1,300 or like 1,326 possible uh, two-card combinations that right. you could hold uh, as a starting hand. and. Uh, yes, the universe of outcomes explodes as the number of cards on the board uh, shows up, but it doesn't explode so large that you can't simulate all of them relatively rapidly uh, on a computer. Whereas with chess, most games that get played have never been played before. Uh, by the time you get to, you know, I, I forget what it is, but on the order of maybe the 15th or 20th move, yeah. odds are that this is something that has just never been experienced by any two humans before. Uh, and I find that so miraculous. Like, I think that's that's a very exciting. The It's de- it's a deterministic game. Like, it is finite. Uh, it's, yes. it's a discrete set, but the magnitude of the possibilities is so large that it just cannot really be uh, completely comprehended but I know we've got computers now that are pretty damn good at it I was but, gonna uh, say and yet now we have computers that can yeah. beat humans at it so terrifying come a long way uh, have you ever played Go? I have not um, but I was actually talking to Andres about this uh-huh. um, and we were discussing whether um, it would be easier to program a computer to play Go or chess mm-hmm. um, my initial impression was chess because uh, the pieces move differently and that would require so much more complexity but purely from um the number of possibilities and the total sample space, I guess. Uh, Go is definitely a much harder game to huh. uh, program a computer to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's... I, I have not played Go either, but I've heard that it's the next frontier in yeah. getting computers to, to beat humans. Right. Um, all right, it's time for the lightning round. Questions that I ask everybody. Oh, we already wow. talked about your best friend, but um, if you could go back and retake any course that you took in college today, what would it be and why? 
retake. You you would take the whole thing again. You just go back and experience it again now. Oh, I just really wish I took my history class with a lot more attention. I, uh-huh. I think I like just slept through most of my history classes. Is that wish. world history or U.S. history or? Uh, all of it. Just much. history. Just history. <laughs> I, I guess in school we didn't have a distinction. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So we had different chapters, but um, yeah, I would. Well, I would love to know a lot more about Indian history than um, I remember from my school days. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Uh, great answer. Is there... Uh, uh, do you have a particular... If you pull out your phone from your pocket and you're riding on the bus or you're uh, just looking to kill 10 minutes, what's your default app that you open up to kill time? I open up my Gmail um, account and um, I've subscribed to a ton of Wall Street Journal email notifications uh-huh. or like just, um, I guess compilations of um, events Mm -hmm. and so I just basically pull them out and there's always there's a new one coming in every hour or so and so they pile up over the day and I just like go back and read the headlines I guess yeah very uh, very mature respectable answer Uh, (laughs) awesome Um, I you know when I wrote this question originally and I started asking people I was expecting to hear a lot of like uh, candy crush or uh, I'm on Instagram <laughs> or you know just like stuff that's much more vapid than the answers I get yeah. and I can't tell if uh, uh, everyone's lying to me or we just have a lot of people that are extremely intellectual here but a lot of a lot of answers like that and very few uh, you know uh, merchants of war or whatever the, <laughs> the, the game of the day is yeah. um, uh, what am I not asking you about that I should be are there any topic areas that you feel are the part of the story of you that we just haven't touched on at all uh, I think I think you've touched on a lot of different topics and uh, ranging from like when I grew up and ranging to my experiences in the US and uh, um, and my interests and my RJ roles and positions really I can't think of anything that we haven't touched upon um, alright I'll, yeah. I'll take that as a victory <laughs> if you think of something else uh, yeah. let me know but uh, we're down to the last question here which is what person at RJ Metrics would you like to listen to a Buddy Time podcast about? Um, I was I was expecting this one, and I, I'm gonna say Andres, except he's out for the next <laughs> month and a half, I guess. I think we're booked uh, up on recordings for a month and a half, so it might be okay. That might be uh, a uh, yeah. That I would, but if you've got another answer, I'll take two. Okay, I would I would do Andres um, or uh, Crash Tool. Crash Tool. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I will. Uh, I will honor a double request there because I think Andres <laughs> is. Uh, Gets a bonus star because he's going to be coming back with some stories, hopefully. Definitely. I think um, you'd need a two-hour podcast with Andres. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Uh, Akash, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Uh, really appreciate getting to know you a little better. And uh, can't wait to continue the adventure here at RJ with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. Awesome. My pleasure. Awesome. Yep.